We pick up with verse 24. <clears throat> and let's go to prayer. To... Lord, we ask that you would now pour into us your truth from your word that we may live in accordance with it that we may introduce others to you, that they may know through it your love and care for them, you who are our creator and redeemer. We ask that you do this now in this time, in Christ's name, amen. When something unexpected or out of place occurs, we might say, I hear more and more people say today, well, that was random. But was it? If you consider, if you were here especially in the first hour, that here we have Jerry coming to talk about design and intent ministries and all of the valuable importance that he is engaged in there, and now I'm coming to speak to you about the creation of land animals. Well, that was random. But I hope in this message to give you some sense of God's design and intent in creating various of these animals and how important that is because it is completely contrary to the very popular view of our culture that all of these things, all of life, came about by random chance. And if that's true... If that's true, then everything that, not only what Scripture says is, is wrong, but everything that, that what, what Jerry is doing in Design and Intent Ministries is worthless. Because there is no design, there is no intent, there is no purpose, there is no right and wrong. So is this random? Considering that the very next passage I must talk about is the creation of mankind, male and female. Is this random? Life is not random. It is not lacking in plan or purpose or design. The creation account that we have been dwelling in now some many weeks, the creation account is clear that life did not come about by random chance, nor does it evolve onward by random chance, nor are the things that, it, that happen in our lives come about by random chance. God purposed and designed everything in meaningful ways. And He is the authority over all of it. Truth is not relative. There really is no way to say that that doesn't affirm truth. Truth is relative. Are we affirming a truth if someone says that? The Bible is the Word of God, giving us the truth about life and death and morality and the past and the present and the future. 
So both those who believe in evolution and then say there is no God, that's kind of the standard cultural position. But also those who think that evolution did happen over a long, long period of time, but they say God started it and God orchestrates it. It's the way God is doing things, albeit Scripture doesn't say that. So both categories have to deny the historical veracity of the Genesis account of creation. Why do they have to deny it? Because in no sense... Many have claimed there is a sense, but in no sense do Genesis 1 and 2 especially teach or support any notion of random chance evolution. We believe in Genesis, the opening chapter, the second chapter, the third chapter, the fourth chapter. We believe these things are just as true as Exodus chapter 20 where we read about the Ten Commandments. We believe that the things that we are reading in God's Word here in the opening chapters of Genesis are just as true as John chapter 3, Romans chapter 3, Romans chapter 10, which lay out the basics of the gospel. Revelation 22, 18 and 19 warns us that anyone who adds to or takes away from Scripture is liable to judgment. We believe what God tells us in His Word and we accept it as He has given it. We do not seek to conform it by either adding to it or subtracting from it. We do not seek to conform it to any man-made theory. It is just unthinkable, though it happens a lot, for any true Christian to assault the veracity and the clear teaching of Genesis 1 and 2, but the majority of evangelical leaders and their people following them do just that. Not just the world, not just liberal churches, but even among evangelical churches, there is a great tendency to reinterpret Genesis 1 and 2 because so many think that science has proved things that contradict the clear teaching of these texts. And so they take the Word of God and they try to conform it to what they think that science has proved. And in doing so, they are maybe not with direct, this is what they're doing, that they, that's not what they're thinking maybe, but in doing so, they are accepting science as more authoritative than God's Word. Science does not sit in judgment of God's Word. But let me hasten to add, that which is true science has never in any point contradicted any part of God's Word. The theory of evolution is not true science. And it's not true. 
And I hope as we look at these land animals and something of the design and intent that God placed there, you'll have another, as we've seen in other passages, reason to affirm that. So today we start day six of God's creation, beginning at verse 24. Then God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures after their kind. Cattle and creeping things and beasts of the earth after their kind. And it was so. God made the beasts of the earth after their kind and the cattle after their kind and everything that creeps on the ground after is its kind. And God saw that it was good. All good. Then God said, we've heard this before, Again, God creates by simply speaking things into existence. Just as with the previous days, God makes or creates, both terms used, meaning essentially the same thing. He makes or creates instantaneously, simply by his spoken creative decree. He commanded things to appear, and it was so. On the sixth day, God filled the land with living creatures. We already talked about how he filled the seas with living creatures, but he fills the land with living creatures on the sixth day. Everything from elephants and giraffes and dinosaurs to insects and worms. Let the earth bring forth, I read in the New American Standard. Let the earth produce, if you happen to be looking at the NIV. Both of these are a little misleading, or they can be misleading. This language does not mean that the earth or the soil itself has the intrinsic ability to produce or bring about animal life. Some who would affirm evolution want to sort of draw that in to the text. Verse 25 clearly states that God made or created them. There is no suggestion here that inanimate matter produced living creatures. But this phraseology, the earth bringing forth or producing, if that's the way the NIV does it, I think it's a little worse, but this phraseology does mean that in this case, we have a creation not just from nothing. There's creation from nothing that God does in his creating in this six days of creation. But here we have an example of God not creating from nothing or creating not using anything. He caused the land animals to, as it were, come out of the earth. I, I don't mean in a birth sense, but, but they, they are created from the earth. This is very similar to God creating man. We're not told this in the latter part of Genesis 1, but God creating man from the dust of the ground, Genesis 2, verse 7. 
So here you have examples of creation, not ex nihilo, not out of nothing. God still does it. He does it instantaneously. He does it in just a day. Um, does it instantaneously as part of a day, but it's not from nothing in some cases. When such creatures, the land animals, and human beings die, we know that their bodies decompose and go back to the earth, as it were. The bodies of animals are composed of the same chemical elements as the earth. The same is true for man, Genesis 2, verse 7. Next little thought. All three categories mentioned of land animals, cattle, creeping things, beasts of the earth, are made on the same creative day, in the same creative act, not one after another, not evolving from one another, They are, not, they are not even made in a certain order. That would be the one after another. And certainly not over a long period of time. It all occurred on day six, a solar literal day. So it, it's not those other things. And the fact that they were all created at once and not in an order or, or connected or evolved to each other seems confirmed by the different order of the three categories in, if you look at it in verse 25 and compare it in verse 24, it seems like repetition, but the order's different, suggesting that they didn't come in an order, they didn't relate to each other in some evolutionary imagining order, but God just created the land animals and he distinguishes them in three categories and he did it all at once. And the fact that when he says it in one order in one verse, another order in another verse, the order isn't important. It isn't like they come one after the other. They are living creatures, verse 24, as we've seen before of living creatures that are called living creatures, not all living things, but they are living creatures as they move and have consciousness, unlike plants, which are also living things. So now, one at a time, cattle. Cattle seem to be land animals, especially of the type that are able to be tamed or domesticated for man's use. Sheep, goats, cows, oxen, etc. Creeping things. They're smaller animals, low to the ground. This, I think, would include many reptiles, lizards, snakes, short-legged animals like squirrels, rabbits, mice, and other rodents worms and all matter of tiny creatures or insects. All kinds of, at least the land-based insects. Maybe some of the flying insects were created when God created the birds. But then again, maybe they were all created here on the sixth day. Beasts of the earth would be larger animals, wild animals, elephants, bears, lions, tigers, and large land dinosaurs, they being reptiles. So, were there little reptiles? Were there big reptiles? One way or the other, dinosaurs and man lived at the same time. They were both created on the same creation day. Very likely, behemoth, which is mentioned in Job chapter 40, was not 
an elephant or a hippopotamus. In, in so many of my commentaries on Job, the behemoth in, in 40 is identified as either an elephant or a hippopotamus. Those are the guesses that are usually made. Very likely that's not the case. I suggest that the behemoth was a, what we now call today, a sauropod dinosaur. The description in Job of behemoth's tail like a massive cedar hardly fits an elephant or a hippopotamus, both of whom have really rather small tails compared to their body size. Whereas the sauropod has a huge tail some 10 meters long. Dr. Mary Schweitzer, a committed theistic evolutionist, that means someone who believes that God created, but that the process was an evolutionary one over millions and millions of years. Dr. Mary Schweitzer has rocked the evolutionary uniformitarian world. Now, I'm using her as an example because she believes in evolution, not those of us who don't who say, look, there's evidence against it, but here's a woman who's thoroughly committed to the theory of evolution, who rocks their world, their uniformitarian, everything continues always as it has, with discoveries that she has investigated of soft tissue in dinosaur bones, ligaments, blood cells, flexible blood vessels, collagen, osteocalcin, actin, histones, and DNA. Soft tissues in dinosaur bones. No way, no possible way can such soft tissue have lasted for the presumed 65 or so million years since dinosaur extinction, according to evolutionary theory. Dinosaurs did not live so long ago and die out so long ago. Evolutionists are wrong. In reality, many dinosaurs apparently perished when the Earth's climate changed severely after the flood. We'll, we'll get to the flood, Genesis 6, 7, 8, 9, but presumably that's when many of these dinosaurs perished. We know, if we believe God's word, that human lifespan greatly decreased post flood, in the post-flood world. Being huge reptiles, dinosaurs make sense as huge reptiles before the flood if, if dinosaurs lived similarly long lives like human beings lived long lives, but there is a big difference. Reptiles never stop growing. However long they live, they get bigger and bigger and bigger. Increasing size dramatically if they live long periods of time. Human beings that live now 100 years, 80 years, 70, back in the beginning, before the flood, they were living over 900 years. How big might these reptiles that God creates have become? large dinosaurs. Some may well exist in a much smaller form. And some of the reptiles that exist in a much smaller form today might be 
the ones that became very large back when. Land animals like other living creatures were created, we read here, after their kind, which indicates a limitation of variation within each land animal type or kind. In other words, you can have lots of variation within kinds, but there is a limit. You don't have an evolution that runs from kind to kind to kind in an unending chain. Each land animal, like other life forms, have their own specialized DNA code, ruling out spontaneous generation and evolution, or macroevolution. The misnomer microevolution simply describes change and variation at a, at a micro level, which does happen, but that doesn't prove the macro theory. They use the micro theory to suggest that the macro theory must be true, but that runs against everything we know about genetics. We talked about that. From a couple of creatures of what, let's call it, the wolf-like kind, foxes, coyotes, and all manner of dog species may be derived. In Berlin, a female wolf and a male poodle were mated, and their pups all looked like one another. But their grand pups, some looked like wolves, some looked like poodles, and some looked like odd mixture of both. Variation in kinds. Not the same thing as evolution throughout. A Russian research group bred a husky dog and a jackal. Animals have a lot of genetic variation possible within their created kinds, but they did not evolve across kinds. God created them according to their kinds. He created each kind. Once again, we're told that God saw this abundance of animal life that he had created, and he said it was, it is good. Well, I slipped that in there. It was good because there's been a fall. Not everything is good now. Everything God made originally was good. No imperfections, no deformities, no mutations. Evolutionary theory has no hope if there aren't tons and tons of mutations over millions and millions of years, long before Adam and Eve were created, and long before God was concluding that everything that he created and everything about his creation was very good. Mutations are not a very good category. So, we must never worship nature as pantheists do. We must not have some sort of, of mother nature as though nature is alive in that same sense. But we do worship the creator of the material universe and all living creatures. The variety of what God has created is astonishing, a world filled with wonders, signifying the wisdom and the power and the majesty of our loving Creator. So now let's consider a few examples that I hope will give you some sense of the, how nice that he was here this morning, the design and intent of God's creation. Cattle cows, 
Perhaps you are aware that cows have a, an, an extremely complicated digestive system that is a wonder of the Creator's design. It is a four-chamber complex in which chewed fiber ferments in the first stomach. It stays in that first stomach for a day or two, and in that first stomach, as it is fermenting, it is acted upon by bacteria breaking down cellulose into simple sugars. The first stomach in a cow is huge, holding the equivalent of almost 50 gallons. Cows drink about 25 to 50 gallons of water a day. Now, I said the first stomach is huge. That's where the, the, the food is taken in and, and, and the, the chewing, etc. are going on there. But that's not where the water is. Bacteria is there, acting upon that which the cow has eaten. But the 25 to 50 gallons a day bypasses the first stomach that cows drink and goes into, flows into the second stomach, mixing there with enzymes and fermentation bacteria. While muscular movement in the cow's first stomach rolls the fodder in chamber one into little partially fermented balls which pass into the second chamber where they are infused with enzyme-saturated liquid. That's where all the water they drink goes. Now, the cow then does what's called ruminating. It regurgitates the fiber balls, chewing them more finely and swallowing them again. Have you thrown up? (laughs) Would you like to chew it and swallow it again? Which scripture refers to as chewing the cud. Leviticus 11 and verse 3. Cows eat for about six hours a day and they chew their cud for about eight hours a day. The chewed cud returns to the second stomach and the smaller particles pass into the third stomach while the larger ones are regurgitated again and re-chewed. In the third stomach, excess liquid is reabsorbed and the thoroughly chewed cud is compacted and broken down even more. It then passes into the fourth stomach chamber where strong acids and enzymes complete the digestive process. Now, the nutrients pass into the cow's blood, sustaining the cow and providing vital nutrients for milk production. The cow gets a meal, often from simple hay or grasses, in a very efficient God's design and intent, converting cellulose, which we cannot digest, into edibles, which we can digest, milk, cream, butter, cheese, and a whole lot of other dairy products. This is a marvel of God's design. The average cow produces more than 5,000 quarts of milk a year, supplying enough for nearly 60 people. 
milk products too. They also produce, wait for it, 10 tons of manure every year. I don't know if you've ever been out on a farm that has cows, but you know the cow manure has got to be one of the most pleasant smelling things you've smelled on a farm that has cows. Returning, though, the manure, vital nutrients into the pasture, the grass is grown, the cows eat it, the this is like a cycling process, an amazing cycling process. Cows have an enormous sense of smell. They can smell things up to five miles away. Their cloven hooves allow them to gallop long distances, even in marshy terrain. They are suited to practically every environment, our cows. They thrive in the cold of Canada. They thrive in hot Texas and Florida. What a specially designed gift God has given to us just in that animal. Fully domesticated, easily bred. They graze on a wide variety of wild animal life. They'll, they'll do it with hay, but they graze on a wide variety of wild animal life, wild plant life, not animal, plant life. So they are relatively inexpensive to feed and maintain. A marvel of design that when you consider the detail and the process, how this process evolved is a massive mystery. Sheep. Similarly complex, maybe you didn't know, sheep also have a ruminating four-chambered stomach system. Sheep, however, only live about eight years, but they are vigorous breeders, and their wool makes energy-efficient clothing for both hot and cold weather, clothing which is breathable and fire-resistant and even warm when wet. Superior in many ways to other fabrics. They also provide milk and meat, and in modern times, sheep have played a crucial role in medical research for the benefit of mankind. Camels. Camels are impressive workers. They are able to carry large loads north of 1,000 pounds in the desert where water is scarce. They can absorb and maintain large quantities of water. They can drink. Now, the cows, what did I say, uh, 30, 50 gallons a day? Camels can drink nearly 30 gallons in 10 minutes. An amount that would kill if they took in that much water in 10 minutes, most all other animals. But camels can slowly absorb the water into their bloodstream because their blood cells are able to swell. And they swell to more than three times their normal size, which is part of the absorption process. And after drinking, a camel can go for days without another drink in a desert. They've been known to survive two and a half weeks in a very hot desert climate without drinking any more water. 
So efficient is their internal water recycling system that they're even able to absorb most of the water from their own dung such that their droppings can be burned as fuel immediately upon being dropped. They can withstand the effects of dehydration better than other creatures, and they can lose up to 40% of their body weight and still survive. Their hump is not primarily for water storage, as many have thought. Water is kept in one of their three stomachs. The hump is a large mass of fat that functions as a food reserve, enabling them to live for days in the most extreme desert conditions. The hump also insulates the camel from heat and other effects of solar radiation. Their body temperature adjusts to withstand the heat of day and dissipate heat in the cool of night. This is an unbelievable marvel. They're not supposedly at the high, highest end of the evolutionary chain, and, and we who are supposedly higher, we don't have any of these abilities. Where and how did cows and sheep and camels and so many others acquire their amazing abilities? They did not evolve them. They are creations of God. Now let's consider just a few creeping things. Maybe this is one you've heard of. The bombardier beetle that's found in the deserts of New Mexico. These beetles have a defense mechanism impossible to explain by assumed evolutionary development. Impossible to explain by assumed evolutionary development. They produce two chemicals in separate reservoirs in their abdomen, hydroquinone and hydrogen peroxide. Harmless, either of them by themselves, but potentially explosive when combined. When these beetles are attacked, they release these chemicals through a movable jet at the rear tip of their abdomen. It's kind of like a gun. Catalytic enzymes in a tiny reaction chamber just inside this expulsion gun or valve set the chemical reaction in motion at precisely the right moment. The beetle aims the abdominal turret that he can aim and releases this explosive mixture into the face of a predator. And those combined chemicals instantly, instantly reach the temperature of boiling water which is a rather huge deterrent to predators. The beetle can then fire off five such explosive shots in rapid succession, timing them such that the chemical reaction always occurs when it should and never in the reaction chamber itself, which would, of course, destroy the beetle. How the beetle knows how to do this and how such a complex system with so many independent parts could develop through a long, slow evolutionary process of individual random genetic changes is simply unimaginable. Or consider what is fast becoming my favorite, ants. 
which Solomon knew, Proverbs 6, verses 6 to 8, are some of the hardest workers in the animal kingdom, able to lift, say, about 50 times their own weight. With brains proportionally larger than any other animal. They work cooperatively without supervisors, just as Solomon observed, and yet they live short lives. They live as short as 45 days in some species, and yet they work for that period, however long they live, virtually nonstop, straight through the whole. They can survive underwater, sometimes for days. They can survive being frozen. They can withstand high, high temperatures. The largest ants grow to more than an inch. The smallest are less than a tenth of a centimeter. All ants combined account, now listen to this, for more than one-tenth of the world's living tissue by mass. More than one-tenth of the world, all the living things, tissue by mass. Experts believe that the world's ants combined would outweigh the world's total human population. Ants cannot live alone. They live in colonies, and they are sort of a massive organism. They're individual, and yet they're sort of like a massive organism in a colony, wherein each individual ant contributes to the welfare of the entire colony with specific jobs. All designed. Queen ants lay up to two or 3,000 eggs per day. Young males and queens fly off together in swarms, mating in mid-flight. One mating flight supplies the queen ant with all the male seed that she will need to fertilize every egg she will ever lay at two to 3,000 per day. After the initial flight, the queen loses her wings plants a new colony, prepares a nest, and seals off the entrance. In most cases, not all, but in most cases, the queen ant never leaves again. One flight, she's impregnated, etc., gets all that she needs for thousands upon thousands of eggs, and seals herself into the colony. Requiring, of course, at that point, huge amounts of food, which is supplied by worker ants continually, who work continually. Ants, if that's not impressive enough, and how do you evolve that? Ants maintain the Earth's soil, aerating and fertilizing it and pollinating many plants and performing a host of other ecological house-cleaning, if you will, services. Ants are so vital to Earth's well-being that were all the ants on Earth to die, or, hint, not be there, the result would be catastrophic. All of Earth's land-based ecosystems would quickly collapse. 
Ants and plants are so utterly independent on each other that one could not possibly evolve without the other, created by God in the same week, makes sense. But evolving at greatly separated times, whether you're just a naturalistic evolutionist or even as day-age creationists believe, it just won't work. You can't have plants and ants separated over a long period of time and they're going to survive. The idea that various creatures and vegetation evolved over a vast period of time, separated from one another for much of the time, presents all sorts of problems to evolutionary theory and old earth creationists who think God created by evolutionary means over ages of time. What makes more sense is all living creatures and man and vegetation coexisting together in balance as God created them from the beginning in just six days. More examples of God's creation that defy evolutionary, exa- evolutionary explanation could, could be multiplied. I'll give you a few quickly. Consider chameleons. You know chameleons, that little creature that changes colors. They change colors instantly to match their backgrounds. And chameleons have two eyes that can focus independently. Lord, I could have used... I had nine kids. I could have used two eyes that focus independently. Viewing two scenes do chameleons at once. The capabilities of so many alleged higher evolved living creatures simply don't possess. But how valuable would that be? Or basilisk lizards that can literally run on water. Their toes, the toes of their hind feet, have flaps that remain furled when they walk on land. But if they're pursued by a predator, they stand on their hind legs and they run and can run across water. Their toe flaps, when they run across water, unfurl and their hind feet become like large paddles. And by running fast, they can cross on top of the water for a considerable distance. How did they evolve this amazing foot design by chance? There are so many creeping things with uniquely designed, remarkable defense systems, built-in camouflage, armor, chemical defenses, and each of them doing their unique part to maintain the Earth's ecosystems. These are all things that we didn't really understand back when Darwin propounded the modern theory of evolution. What we know today about so many living creatures cries out creation and design and intent. By an infinitely intelligent God who is worthy of all worship and praise. Simply for his creation alone, much less his salvation. Well, what about the beasts of the earth? The elephant's trunk is a wonder. It's probably a wonder if you've just seen an elephant at the zoo or wherever. The elephant's trunk is strong enough to lift large logs, but sensitive enough and you may have done this, to pick up a single peanut. Elephants drink, breathe, and feed themselves using their trunks. They use their trunks to feel objects, to determine 
size, texture, and temperature. The elephant's trunk holds four gallons of water and is about seven feet long, comprising the animal's nose and upper lip. No other animal grips things and picks them up with its nose. Evolutionists believe that such remarkable features as those of the elephant develop by accident and singularly. It's only in the elephant. Bears. Bears hibernate, sometimes up to seven months. Unlike other, and there are other, hibernating animals, bears can awake from their hibernation rapidly if they get disturbed, and yet they can sleep for long periods in hibernation without eating or, and here's the important part, without eating or eliminating, which is impossible to other animals. If other animals went for months without eliminating, it would cause a fatal buildup of toxins in their blood. Other animals eliminate during hibernation. Bears don't. Bears store fat for fuel and yet resulting in no waste product in hibernation. For reasons that biologists simply cannot explain, the level of uric acid and other toxins in bear's blood remains essentially the same, whether they're hibernating or not, unlike other animals. Examples could be multiplied many, many, many times over. Scan the vastness of the universe at night and contemplate the wonders that it holds and you are brought face to face with the glory of our Creator. Examine a drop of pond water under a microscope and you see more evidence of God's glory. Consider the vegetation, the sea life, the birds, and the animals of the land. What conclusion can we possibly come to but that this world was designed and created by an awesome God? Who deserves all of our allegiance, all of our worship, all of our faith, all of our submission, all of our love, all of our trust and witness. And now we are ready to consider man the crown of God's creation, created in God's image. How important was that to design intent ministry? Human beings with capabilities vastly harder to explain by the evolutionary model than all the other living creatures on earth that already in themselves cannot be explained by evolution and random chance. But our consideration of mankind must wait until next week. Let's pray. Lord, the more that we learn, the more that we must marvel. And we must say, as your word declares, that the very creation itself provides astounding evidence of your existence, your reality, your goodness, even in a fallen condition. Just as Jerry explained, we're all in your image, we human beings. We're all sinful. We all have issues. And yet there we are in your image, a marvel, even in a fallen state, much less the perfect original state. Guide us as we move forward, as we consider humankind itself, 
And may we be your bold witnesses in a world that needs to know you and, and perhaps is not, because of so much wrong teaching, is not realizing that the very things, the very creatures that they see around them, the very creatures that individuals in the world are so familiar with are, are evidence of you, astounding evidence of you. May we lead others to believe in you and know your love and know your salvation as we have received it. Not that we become perfect yet in this life, but that we know you. May that be our heartbeat and our heart's desire. In all things we pray in Christ. Amen. Rise, if you will, for God. May he bless and keep you in his truth and in his love, and may you share both in, I loved it, Jerry, tension. Amen? Amen. Amen. Ladies, don't depart. Men, get out of here. <laughs>